Thank you so much, Kyle. It's a joy to be with you to open up God's Word this morning as Pastor Hardy is away. It's a joy to be a part of a church that gets to share him with other like-minded brother and sisters, churches, and uh, in light of that, the joy is mine to come here uh, with us this morning for our time in, in the Word. We're going to be in Luke chapter 7, so I invite you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Luke 7, 1 through 10, I'm going to go ahead and read that at the beginning of our time, follow along with me. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum, and a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. You probably know that Charles Spurgeon was known as the Prince of Preachers. You may also know that during his time in the 19th century in London, he trained thousands of preachers. Uh, he was very gifted and he thought a lot about preaching. And one of the components of preaching that he thought about uh, especially was illustrations. In fact, after he died, some of his lectures were published under the title, The Art of Illustration. Spurgeon explained that uh, illustrations, you know, he used his own illustration to explain what illustrations are. He said illustrations are like windows. Uh, buildings, they can function just fine structurally without windows. But buildings, like a sermon, get great value from having windows in them. So as you preach, you need to be able to, to have light shed upon the point you're making from the text. The light that comes in from the windows, it gives clarity to the, the hearer. It helps us to see what this object is, what this truth is. Likewise, the light helps us to see what the object is not. Well, the verses I just read for us, they don't contain a sermon, but they do contain an illustration. This is a real-life illustration. This is the, the perfect illustration of a sermon that Jesus had just finished preaching in Luke chapter 6. You see, there we have Luke's summarized version, what some people call the Sermon on the Plain. This is his summarized version of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. And in that sermon, you may know, Jesus really divides all of humanity into two basic categories. 
There are true disciples, and there are false disciples. There are those who are blessed, and there are those who are cursed. In other words, there are those who have true saving faith, and there are those who don't. So the verses that we read, these are, uh, I would make the point for us, these are the the quintessential illustrative, illustrative point and picture of what Jesus had just spoken about this interaction with this Roman centurion. It serves as the perfect complement to his sermon. We can imagine Jesus, you know, as he's going and he, he, he starts this interaction, he tells the crowd that is watching, look, this is exactly what I was just talking about. In fact, he, he says as much in verse 9, as we'll see together in the text. So let's look at that together. We're going to see this great illustration And to help us walk through it, I'm just going to break it into four parts. A very simple outline. Four parts to this illustration that will help us better understand how to live by faith in Christ to His approval and glory. So four parts to this illustration to help us better understand how to live by faith in Christ to His approval and glory. The first part is very simple. This is just the circumstance. We're helped out here, verses 1 through 3, with the stage being set with the circumstance. It says, when he had completed all his discourse, again, the sermon he had just finished, in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. So the setting, this is the fall of A.D. 29. Jesus was just a few months into his ministry in Galilee. And Capernaum, as you, as you read through the Gospels, you come quickly to realize that it's, it's kind of like home base. For Jesus, it's a hub where he's always going out, coming back. He had a lot of friends there, and it plays a prominent role in these early months of his ministry. And Luke tells us that there was a centurion there with a slave, and that slave was near to death. Verse two. Now, there are some vital things that we need to understand about this centurion. Uh, we don't have his name. We don't have a picture of him or anything like that in the text, but we do. Uh, derive some information about him just from the fact that he was a centurion. A centurion, you might even pick up on it from the word itself, it was a, a rank in the Roman army uh, of one who was over about a hundred soldiers. Just to give you a zoomed out perspective, there were six centurions in a cohort. There were ten cohorts in a legion. And at the height of Rome's power, their military might, they had 28 legions of soldiers. And this rank, this rank of centurion, it really was the most respected rank of all their their army. This was the rank for the men who were the most elite. They were the kind of the consummate professional. They were the soldier's soldier. They were thoroughly respected by those beneath them, and they were deeply depended on by those above them. To get an idea of what this guy was like, you can kind of picture maybe the stereotypical World War II, you know, squad leader who he has been through battles over and over again. He's war hardened and the men who are with him, they look up to him, they admire him, they would lay down their life for him. That's because they've been with him as he has made real time life and death decisions and he worked his way up the same path that they were on. So they were, they were deeply uh, admiring of him. That's who this guy is. He's not a tribune or a legate. 
Those were folks who would have a higher rank in the army, but they derived their position from some sort of uh, political connection or family influence. But not so this guy. He was the soldier's soldier. And this one in particular was unique. He wasn't, you know, given over to cynicism with just brute, a hard shell. He was, he was deeply caring. We see that in his care for this slave and what he, what he did with sending this message to Jesus. And I won't go behind the grammar, but later on in verse 7, we see that this slave, this young man, he even considered him his own son. He, he deeply cared for this young man. So verse 3, he sent these Jewish elders to Jesus. Luke will later on use a different term for the religious elders, the leaders of the synagogue. Those are not the ones that Jesus sent here in our text. He sent what we might think of as, as city councilmen or aldermen. These are the civic leaders of this Jewish city. They're the ones who represent the interests of the people. Uh, they're, so to speak, the, maybe the face of Capernaum. And so the centurion sends them, and they go. And the way in which they go also tells us something about the centurion. I mean, he had the authority to send them, no doubt. They were obligated just on the, the fact of who he was. They had to go. But look how they went. They, they clearly went gladly. They were in his camp. They were for him. They were not under compulsion. So this shows us really just this snapshot of the circumstance that the centurion in, who he was and what was going on here with this slave. And this is the context out of which his faith would become visible. This faith that Jesus commends. Of course, the circumstances are no accident. There are, there are no you know, accidents with God. This is a divine interaction set up to underscore the point of Jesus' sermon that he had just finished. They're the catalyst to give us this, this illustration of, of true faith. And, and God uses circumstances sovereignly, divinely, we know this, in all of our lives to, to help us to have our faith revealed, to have our faith tested and even strengthened, to, to show us what is there for His purposes. And if you look back on your own life, I'm sure you know that. And, and you can also understand that the kinds of circumstances in which faith is so clearly displayed are the difficult circumstances, the, the trials, just like this centurion was going, going through right, right now in our text. And even if you look at the two verses just before chapter 7, you see Jesus' illustration to make that very point. Luke 6, 48 and 49. Here you have the, the proverbial storms and floods that come into life and they re reveal what the true foundation is. One is either founded upon the rock of Christ as revealed in Scripture or the sand of everything else. So that's the, the circumstance from which the centurion sends these elders. And that introduces us into our second part, our second part of our illustration, and that's the contrast. So these elders, they're kind of our foil for our illustration. They're the contrast to true saving faith. Verses 4 and 5. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. These men, the, these ones who are functioning as the face of the city, 
They come to Jesus and they, and the language that they use, it couldn't be stronger. They are exhorting, they're begging, they're beseeching, they're, they're almost commanding Jesus with this strong language. And, and they give their reasons and they set off right from their first word. Worthy is He. That's how we would read it literally in the Greek. Worthy is He. And I, I hope you see how immediately that's a telltale sign for, for something that was going wrong here. This Jewish theology of merit. This theology that's the antithesis of justification by faith. They say He's worthy. They use this Greek word axios. You can probably hear our word for axiom there, or axiomatic. That's simply a statement that we can, we can just make and we can assume that everybody's going to accept it. It's just generally approved. We don't need to undergird it with any argumentation. He's, he's that kind of a guy. More deeply, that word at its root has the idea of balancing scales. So they're saying, you know, relative to other people, this man, he deserves this. That puts the Jewish leader's mindset on clear display. For Jesus, there's the true faith and the false faith, the true disciple and the false disciple. For them, there are the worthy and the unworthy. Those who by their deeds demonstrate that they're worthy, that they've earned it, that they've balanced the scale versus those who are unworthy. Their deeds are deficient. And in their estimation, this man is fit. So That's what they're calling on Jesus for. In their estimation, this man is on equal footing with Jesus' healing power. Really, if we turn it around from the other direction, we see that, that they're saying, Jesus, you owe this man because of who he is and what he's done. You owe him this favor. And they give two reasons for that. You see that in verse 5. They say he loves our nation and he built our synagogue. They're very impressed. And they're very sincere. This centurion, like I said, he's a, he's a Roman soldier but he's one that treats them well. He's really the enemy, if you think about it. I mean, naturally, we would expect them to resent this man. He's the face of the occupying presence. He's the face of Caesar. When he speaks, Caesar speaks. He's the one who's controlling all that's going on in the land of their ancestors, the land promised to Abraham, this pagan Gentile. But they don't resent him. In their mind, he's one of the good ones. He even built their synagogue, they say. Like I said, the, the rank of centurion, it was one that was very well respected. It was also one that was very well compensated. And when you look back at the, the ancient Greek history in the Roman Empire, you'll see that uh, this actually wasn't that uncommon of an occurrence for someone in charge this way to do public works, to help out, to maintain order and peace and good relation with the people. And they, they use this emphatic language to show that, that this is what he did. It says, he himself built our synagogue. He didn't just pay enough like to have his name on a brick that was a part of the synagogue. He was the driving force behind it. He was instrumental. And so they're, they're very impressed. For them, this tips the balance in his favor. He is now worthy. But as I, as I said, these, these elders, they're, they're our contrast to saving faith. Like the, the illustration of the light coming in the window, that the light shows us what the true faith is and what the true faith is not. We see that more as we ask, who were they concerned with? Centurion obviously is very concerned for his slave. 
His mind is, is there. They don't mention the slave at all. They're, they're much more interested in the good for the centurion. But if we press it, I think we actually see that their focus is not even on the centurion. It's on their selves. We could legitimately read this as he is worthy because of his relation to us. I mean, you see what he says. He loves us. That's what they say. He, he built us, our synagogue. Now, if they were trying to make their case that he was truly worthy, these are you know Jewish people steeped in the Old Testament and the Torah, what would they have pointed to? Well, the, the locus classicus for them is the Shema. You probably know that text, Deuteronomy 6. What does Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 say? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God. Your love is to go to Yahweh with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That would be the mark to appeal with. And then later on in those verses, Deuteronomy 6.10, right after the admonition to love Yahweh comes the warning not to forget that it's Him who gives you everything. Verse 10, remember that when you see the splendid cities which you did not build. Verse 11, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. Verse 12, Watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord. He's the one who brought you out of Egypt. So the Jewish leaders here then, the representatives of the people, they got it thoroughly mixed up. They say, he built us our synagogue and he loves us and that makes him worthy. Or or as they should have said, he, he loves our God. They should have said he was the means by which our God gave us our synagogue. They're a contrast to saving faith. They were appealing to Jesus not on His terms, but on theirs. They were appealing to Him on merit. They found Him worthy for what He had done. And maybe we we read this and we say, well, that's kind of a a harsh critique, isn't it? They're trying to show this guy a favor. He had, in fact, done some great things for them, and he does show that he apparently really does care for them. Isn't it okay that we intercede for people that are helpful to us? Well, of course, and, and I, I, I hope that each one of us does that every day, that we petition our Lord, the sovereign Lord of the universe, on behalf of those we love and who are helpful to us. There's no sin in that. It, it brings to mind an event that happened in the Reformation In 1540, Martin Luther received a letter from one of his, we could call him a lieutenant, maybe we could call him a centurion, I don't know, but one of his co-workers in the Reformation effort. This was in 1540. The man's name was Friedrich Myconius. And in a shaking hand, Myconius wrote to him, essentially, it's been a great privilege to labor with you, but I'm gravely ill I don't think I'll be alive when you're reading this. He basically says, I'll see you in heaven. Luther, in Lutheresque kind of fashion, goes to the Lord and is praying fervently for this man's healing. And then he shot off a letter right back to Myconius. And he wrote, I command thee in the name of God to live. I still have need of thee. 
Interestingly, uh, Myconius sort of obeyed. He actually outlived Luther. So that kind of zealous intercession really should mark us as Christians. And that's certainly not condemned in this text. But as we look at these leaders, we see that that's not the appeal that they're making to Jesus. Regardless of how sincere their concern for their centurion was, they're not, they're not coming to Christ, like I said, on, on His terms. They're cajoling Him. They're really even manipulating Him. They're not humble and not submissive. They're not expressing faith in Jesus' grace and benevolence. They're basically saying He loves us. He's essentially one of us. He deserves this. And that's a contrast with what saving faith is. The posture of saving faith. We find that as we even read through Scripture a little further. Scripture presents Capernaum, this city in particular, as an example of false faith. As I said, it was a hub where Jesus spent a lot of time in His early ministry, and He did tons of miracles there. Luke 4.23 records that He did so many miracles there that the people in His own hometown of Nazareth said, you need to be doing those miracles here with us. Mark 1.21 tells us that it was in Capernaum where Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. Mark 2 and Luke 5 gives us that memorable picture of the men lowering the paralytic down from the roof. That was in Capernaum. Luke 6.19 tells us that throngs and throngs of people were following Him in Capernaum and He was healing them all, Luke records. All this happening in Capernaum. But despite all of that divine confirmation, the confirmation of Jesus' identity, despite all of that, what is Capernaum known for in the end? Are they known for saving faith? These, these very men who the centurion sent to Jesus? Matthew eleven twenty three and 24, this is what Jesus says, probably talking to these very same men. You, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You're not going to heaven. You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. That's scathing judgment for those of Capernaum, those who persisted in their rejection of the Savior and clung to their notions of self-worth. You know what you'll find if you go to Capernaum today? You won't find anything. There's no Capernaum today. Archaeologists think that they have found the foundation of the synagogue that the centurion built, but there's no city there. That's why in the parallel passage of this account, Matthew 8, we hear Jesus' words after this interaction in Matthew 8, 11, and 12. He says, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What a contrast to saving faith. It's a contrast that's not frozen in the text of Scripture though. It's alive and well. It's around us everywhere today. It's in religion. It's in all the religions of the world apart from true Christianity. The religion of appeasing God by effort, by achievement. It's the contrasting thought that somehow man can 
earn favor with Him. But that's a contrast that flies in the face of the exclusive message of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. Thankfully, though, over against that contrast, we have our third part, the part at which Jesus marvels, the confession. Confession. Again, we don't get to have a name for our centurion. He even isn't in our our narrative. We're we're reading about him. But we see what, what he does. He sends his friends, as Jesus is approaching, to deliver his message. And he says, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, verse 6, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now, this is an astounding, astonishing confession. And we see that because of the very next verse. Look who's astonished by it. It's Jesus. He marveled at him. He, he was perplexed. And this is a very strong word as well. It's a common word in the New Testament. But almost always, Jesus is the object of this verb. And rightfully so, right? I mean, you have Jesus walking on water and feeding the 5,000 and raising people from the dead and healing the sick and casting out demons. People are going to marvel at that. And they did. And that word's used to explain that repeatedly with Jesus as the object. But only two times in the New Testament is it used with Jesus as the subject. We have it here. And then the other instance actually refers to human faith as well. Mark 6, 6, we find that Jesus was amazed at the unbelief of those in his hometown. So it's a remarkable thing that Jesus here is marveling and pleased at this centurion's faith. So we need to see what's what's going on here. First off, I would say that this is a, a thoughtful confession. And by that, I do not mean polite. But this is a, a well-reasoned, a, a contemplated, thoughtful confession. The centurion had sent the elders in verse 3, but now he sends his friends. In verse 3, he sent them apostello. The word, our, our word apostle comes from that. It's kind of an objective word. Maybe even with a military sense. He sent them on a mission. But now he uses a different word. He's sending his friends uh, with a nuance of delivering a message, a thought, something he's, he's come to realize. And you, you kind of see that coming together in verses 6 and 7. He, he realizes he's stuck in this tight spot. He says, uh, you can't come to my house because I'm not worthy, and I can't come to you because I'm not worthy. Some time had lapsed between that first delegation that he had sent and now. And again, Luke 6 tells us that there were throngs of people with Jesus. So you had them, you had the disciples, you had these elders. They're all now proceeding to this centurion's house. Jesus has agreed to to come, right? And even if the centurion can't see Jesus because of the, the horizon being blocked off by buildings, you can just sort of picture there's a cloud of dust coming towards his house. And he's, he's thinking about this. It wasn't a quiet group of disciples who were just plodding along behind him like monks. This is an entourage. And as he's thinking about this, it clicks for the centurion. He, he realizes, I think, 
what's going on here? He, he realizes who Jesus is, and that's what he's saying. I realize who you are, and I realize who I am. So just say the word, and the servant will be healed. And Jesus calls this faith. That's what the centurion's confession is made up of, a declaration of what he has come to know. He has come to think rightly about who Jesus is, and he's coming to a corresponding understanding of himself in light of that. He knows he's not what those elders made him out to be. And that's why he's using these words. It's undeniable that he had true humility. As we see what he says, he says, you know, they said I'm worthy. And now he says point blank, I am not worthy. Again, it's interesting though, he uses a different word. He doesn't say axios. He doesn't say I'm not worthy because of what I've done. Again, that idea, that axios idea uh, brought out the picture of scales and relativity, you know, compared to other people. Uh, and he was certainly a respectable person. No one would argue with that. But the centurion says he's not worthy. Hikanos, a different word, a word that has to do with conformity to a standard. He's talking about essence while they were talking about performance. They were talking about his actions. He was talking about his identity. And it's identity that matters, isn't it? Just before this, as Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and you know this verse, Jesus gives the standard of what a person has to be in order to be before God. Matthew 5.48 You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This centurion may well have actually been there and heard those words come from Jesus' mouth. That's quite possible. His words here certainly fit that message, and it shows us that he gets it. He's talking about who he is, not just what he has done. He, as a being inside of himself, he realizes, I am not worthy. Now, as he makes that statement, he's putting himself on par with John the Baptist. Luke 3.16 records John the Baptist using the same word, I am not worthy to untie the strap of his sandals. Who I am, I'm not worthy. Paul will likewise use this to say, I am not worthy to be an apostle, 1 Corinthians 15.9. I'm not worthy for the ministry of the gospel, 2 Corinthians 2.16. These men understood who they are in light of who Christ is. And friends, saving faith will always be marked by a reality, a humility, an understanding, a humility that comes from that understanding of this kind. It'll be marked by seeing ourselves accurately. There's a false humility of just blindly, you know, oh, I'm terrible. But this is a humility of, of sorts that you can't fake. It's a humility that's derived from understanding who Jesus is and therefore who I am. Seeing yourself in God's economy, in other words. That's what we see here. The centurion has made a correct assessment. And it's really remarkable that he would do that because he has all these trappings that we would think would keep him from seeing that. I mean, you think about who he is. He is eminently respected. The, the very leaders just go as soon as he says go. He's wealthy. He's able to build a whole synagogue. He's victorious. You know, he's the face, again, of the occupying Roman power. They're not being defeated by anyone. He has seemingly unlimited authority. People are obliged to go when he speaks. 
There's something in us when those things happen. And some of you, I know, are, have prominent roles uh, where, you, where you work and the circles in which you have your existence. There's something in us that when that happens, we tend to start believing, well, there's a reason why those things are happening. There's a reason why I'm the one in charge and I'm the one who's always leading the project or, or whatever it is. It's a landmine that we would think might be uh, a trap to keep the centurion from seeing the truth. But praise the Lord, he comes to this understanding. And that will always be the case when one sees Christ rightly. When you see Christ rightly, you will always see your flaws coming to the surface. So we can understand that if we think we have it all buttoned up and put together, something's askew with our view of Christ. The centurion saw clearly. He saw himself and he saw the Savior. And so we see it reflected even in his message. What does he start with? He says, Lord, do not trouble yourself. What a difference between what he just said and what the elders said to Jesus. They showed no respect at all. But he gives full respect. And based on the, the whole message here, I think it's clear that he's saying more than just sir. For centurion, calling someone Lord was a big deal. Who was Lord for the centurion? Yeah, Caesar himself. Caesar was Lord and God. He was to be adored and worshipped above all others. Caesar was Lord and no one else at the penalty of death. So his first word really starts to lay out that confession for us. Maybe our mind goes to Paul and what he would later write, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, that's what the centurion's doing. He's explaining his unworthiness, putting all the pieces together and realizing, just say the word and he'll be healed. This is such faith. Maybe he hasn't met Jesus. Probably not. He knows probably Jesus hasn't met him, but he recognizes Jesus' authority. That's why he tells us this in verse 8. He understands Jesus' willingness to save, and he expresses that by this picture. Not a picture that's, that's a brag, but he's just explaining that he gets it. He says, I also am a man placed under authority. He knew his own authority. He knew he was put there as a position. His was a derived authority from the emperor. But he knew that Jesus could just say the word. He had intrinsic authority because of who he was. He had authority not just over telling someone to go somewhere, but authority of healing someone with a word. He had authority over the supernatural. Authority without limit. And he banked on that. Just say the word. R.C. Sproul says, here was a man who had stood before generals, maybe even the emperor of Rome, but he knew somehow that in Christ he was dealing with someone who exercised consummate lordship. Is this your perspective? Are you one who truly calls upon Jesus as Lord? Do you recognize Jesus' authority and look to him for all you need? Because if you really understand who He is, and if you really affirm His authority, there isn't room for failing to submit to what He commands. That's why Jesus, again, He just ended His sermon in Luke 6 
And he used this words, these words, Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That doesn't fit. And this illustration helps us to see that. True faith, the kind he was just teaching about in the Sermon on the Mount, is marked by, yes, knowing who Jesus really is, and along with that will always be a humble, trusting submission. That's what marks this great confession at which Jesus marvels. And that leads us then quickly to our final part. We've seen the circumstance and the contrast and the confession, and now forth the commender. If this nameless, faceless centurion was here with us, and we were able to ask him questions, and we asked him who the hero of the story is, of course, he's going to tell us it, it was not himself. It, it was not his achievements. It was not the synagogue that he built, his cleverness, his respectability. The hero is Jesus, the Christ, the one who does this commending. And this incident is the perfect illustration of that, the saving faith, and it helps us to see that it is Jesus who is the object of that faith. So what do we see quickly of the object here? What does he do? Uh, Verse 6 You see what Jesus does. The Jewish elders had just sort of given him this kind of uh, opening salvo that's oozing with bad theology. He doesn't say, whoa, 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 whoa. tell me what you mean by worthy. Or, hold on, why didn't he come? Why why is he sending you for me to come? He, He doesn't give correction of any kind here. We don't find those things. We find willing grace. So instructive for us. Yes, this same Jesus, Psalm 2, Revelation 19, He's going to return as judge, ruling with a rod of iron, meeting out punishment eternally for those who refuse to repent and look to Him with faith. But here, this is the Jesus who is the gracious Savior, who loves to save repentant sinners, who's offering openly the free gift of eternal life for those who look to Him in repentant faith. This is the Jesus who came to to heal the sick, not the righteous. The one extending that gift. And we see Him here in all His willingness to come to the centurion in grace, and that's what the centurion was banking on. That's what led Him to, to send this delegation. Him saving the unworthy. The man knew Jesus' heart is for the needy who look to Him, so the man looked to Him in faith. And it was this faith that Jesus was looking for. Maybe you haven't thought about that as you look through the text. You know, why, why did Jesus actually go? He, of course, the centurion's right. He could just say the word. He didn't have to go in person and heal the man. He didn't need to go looking for another person to do miracles with. He had throngs of people who were after him to, to heal them and to meet their needs. What was he in search of? Well, he wasn't in search of the things that impress us. That impress people naturally. He was in search of the things that impress him. It was faith. Faith that he encounters and marvels at and takes joy in. So ought we not also to be like him and, and rejoice and encourage our brothers and sisters in their professions and walks in faith that honor him? If our heart is after Jesus' heart, we're going to be after the things that he is after. And it's this kind of faith that causes angels to sing and heaven to rejoice. 
And that's what Jesus is wanting to highlight. You see that in verse 9. He, he marveled at the man's faith. And he didn't just put his head down and say, wow, that was pretty amazing. Or he didn't say it inside of you know, his own mind. He turned to the crowd, verse 9 says. He intentionally and methodically directed the crowd's attention to the real-life illustration of saving faith that was right in front of them. He says, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. He affirms what the centurion has displayed with his words. Jesus is Lord. Man is not worthy of him to be saved. And man must trust his word and come to him in submissive faith. So he gives approval to the man's faith with this commendation. And of course, we haven't even talked about it yet, but he backs that up with his action. Verse 10, at the end, it's sort of just hanging there as an appendix. We haven't looked at it. But it's almost an afterthought. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. I think Jesus puts the final touch on this perfect illustration with this miraculous seal of affirmation. The parallel account of this is in Matthew 8, and there in Matthew 8, 6, we see that this slave is paralyzed and fearfully tormented. Maybe you can picture the centurion saying, you know, this man Jesus, we've sent for Jesus. He can save you. We have hope for your healing through Him. But the slave hasn't met Jesus. He hasn't spoken to Jesus. He hasn't lived for Him. He can't even move. He's paralyzed. He can't make his situation better. He can't talk. He can't save himself. He can't even properly understand the predicament that he's in. I hope that sounds familiar to you. But Jesus restores him to life. He comes and saves the life of one who is not seeking him. And he brings life where there was only death. He is truly gracious to save. And He's worthy of your faith, your allegiance, your worship. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for preserving for us this picture and just abiding with us as we go through life and get distracted by the things around us. Lord, help us to see the beauty of Christ our Savior in this passage and the grace that we can find in Him alone. Those who are here who don't know You through Christ, Lord, please reveal Yourself through this beautiful episode. Let us who do know You be strengthened in You, the object of our faith, because it truly is by You and You alone that, that we might be saved. So let us live lives of devotion and trust and obedience that mark that reality that You might be honored above all. Amen.